You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. No, he's already done that, Jake. You can't do it as well. You just sound really sad. <laughs> Especially as you muffed it. Yeah, but it works with my le- my name. It doesn't work with his name. No, you are Lee. <laughs> yeah, but funnily enough, it worked better with his name than it did with yours. Oh, okay. You knew that wasn't going to work, Simon, when you said it. I know. You kind of muffed it. You kind of chickened out even as you decided to do it, didn't you? We're going to have to go back to the start. Should we start again? Yeah, start again. No. <laughs> you two made well, the decision. The comic thing was... <laughs> two was weeks ago... Work? Was it a joke and then I just say it straight? It doesn't really work, does it? Two weeks ago, we watched Rose and we said that we were going to watch a David Tennant story to talk about tonight. And we gave our listeners a choice of three stories from which they could choose to be the story that we watched. And the choice we gave them was... What was the first one? Idiot's Lantern? No, no, no. Gridlock was one. Gridlock. Mm. That's right. Yeah, there was one from series two. It would have... Tooth and Claw. Tooth and Claw, Gridlock, and The Unicorn and the Wasp. And as you'll have gathered from the way this podcast started, the story that we've watched tonight was Tooth and Claw. (laughs) I'm named Simon. Oh... Also, last week, before I forget, last week we debuted our new theme tune for the next three months. Another one by Wesley Smith, back on the podcast. He's back. Uh, Simon, I've finished watching Broadchurch now. Oh, good. Good. All right, fantastic. Let's move on. Well, no, uh, what I was going to say was that there was, did you not feel there was a lot of criticism about it until the series ended and then everyone sort of said, oh, that was all right. That was good. That was good. Oh, I so don't know, because you see, I turned the internet off every night when it was on, because I was watching it on catch-up, and I didn't want to spoil anything for myself. No. But the point I'm making is, would, would you not... Well, what did you think? Well, I did think it flipped and flapped around for seven episodes. Oh, you did? Okay. Did you not? I wasn't watching a great deal of it. Pardon? <laughs> you weren't watching it? <laughs> No, no, I was I was kind of watching it out of the corner of my eye. I work in the evenings and my wife was watching it, so I was picking up bits and pieces. And she kept saying, oh, this is really good, this is really good. Oh, it's quite clever because it's layered and it's building on the last series and it's everything that you thought was happening in the first series is getting changed slightly for the second one. Um, so I was taking from her that it was a positive experience. But what I was reading was that it was a bit of a mess. It wasn't anywhere near as compelling as the first series. Okay. The first series starts with a murder, and then you're working out who's committed the murder. Mm. And because the first series starts with a murder, and then you're introduced to the characters straight away, then you're following those characters' dilemmas as the detectives are working out who committed the murder. Mm. The second series starts with a murderer that you're already 
aware of is the murderer. Yeah. Murderer. There's no question he's the murderer. But he's appealed. He's he said not guilty. Mm. And so then it's can they prove he did? Is it certain that he was the murderer? Oh, Is absolutely. There not any kind of doubt? No, no shadow of a doubt. Oh, okay. No shadow of a doubt. So you've got seven episodes building up to the point at which the jury come out at the start of the very last episode and say, we find him not guilty. Mm. So, Oh, maybe that's where I misread it, because I was on the understanding that after that first episode, it was like, oh, everything you thought was true may not be true. I don't know. He committed the murder. There was no question of that. Which is why Chris Chibnall had to introduce the second storyline about... Mm. You know, the case that David Tennant couldn't get closed, yeah. that had almost been the ruin of him. And unlike in the first series of Broadchurch, that's like an old case. Mm. So those characters you're being introduced to after the fact, so it wasn't as compelling. So I those see. seven episodes, it's not like they were treading water, but it's a bit like... But you can see you can see why he wanted to tell that story, right? Mm. That mm. had to be the story that he was going to tell. And at the end of the first series, have you seen any of Broadchurch? No. I feel like I have now, though. <laughs> um, but at the end of the first series of Broadchurch, there's only one story you could tell in the second series, right? Which mm. was the old case. Mm. He had to do that. Mm. And to make that interesting, he had the not guilty plea from the character who committed the murder. Yeah. And so you had seven episodes of the two cases, or of the case and the trial, going on side by side. But neither of them was compelling enough to hold it on its own. No. So it kind of flipped and flapped between the two. Yeah, it wasn't that it wasn't any good. Mm. It was good, but it just the first series was utterly compelling in a way that most television just isn't. Mm. So it was good, but it wasn't as good as that first series. I was just wondering whether it was one of those things where, you know, that all this stuff's going on and if you don't kind of get a latch on it, but at the end it makes sense, then... It's kind of a knock-on, a domino effect back through the series where you think, ah, okay, okay, I understand what's going on now. Not so much, really. The last episode, the last episode was great. I watched it twice in the same day, actually. And the last episode, logically and emotionally, wrapped things up really nicely. Mm. So much so, you wonder what they're going to do with series three, because there's nothing left hanging open now for the third series. Mm. So the third series will have to be something new. So it finished everything off in a really neat bow, both cases. Mm. And it did so without compromising as well. But it didn't make you go back and reassess everything, not in that way. The the, the trial, where he pleads not guilty, and what happens to him in the last episode, that was fulfilling, but mm. it didn't but it didn't change anything that had happened before. No, no. And the other case was just a a case of you know, rounding things out, really. Mm. I, I dipped in and out of it. I mean, I sort of sat down and watched two or three episodes and then tried to take what I could and then got the wife to tell me basically what had happened afterwards. I don't think, for Lee, I don't think we've spoiled things so much that if you ever sit down and watch Broad Church, you'll think we've spoiled it for you. Or you'll know he's the murderer as a male, because you said he. Ah, that could have been, well, doesn't matter. It's okay. But my <laughs> daughter's watching it at the moment. She keeps telling me to watch it. First um, or the second series? First. Oh, okay. So she's uh, up to five now. Episode five? Don't oh, know. yeah. You should tell her to go back to the start and watch it with her. First series. Is she watching series. Broadchurch or is she watching... She's watching Broadchurch. 
Should not watch the American one, right? No, Broadchurch and um, Sherlock. She's just started. Oh, this cool. is great for me because yeah. you know we're talking about Holly, Gossip Girl Holly. So um, <laughs> she's finally started to watch proper programs now. <laughs> yeah, Broadchurch and Sherlock are both pretty mainstream. Yeah, I know, but they're good mainstream, aren't they? Well, you wouldn't know, because you've never well, seen Broadchurch, I know, I know would you? Sherlock, though, you know, if you're comparing the two being pretty I, good. The, my TV. biggest compliment, being a complete BBC ITV snob, is that I watched Broadchurch. The first series I watched all the way through, and I wasn't even aware I was watching ITV. Oh, really? Because you usually can tell straight away there's a certain, apart from the adverts, obviously. Well, ITV but... aren't that bad these days. There's some good dramas on ITV, mm, mm. some good detective series on ITV. Whether you turn your nose up at things like Midsummer Murders, they're really well made. But on the other side of that coin, Foil's War is mm. outstanding television. And there's a few other pretty damn decent things on ITV as well. You should catch up with Whitechapel. Okay. Yeah, Whitechapel would be right up your street, and that is great. That's interesting, because I just wouldn't have myself down as a... No, just find it. You probably get it on DVD, the first series, really cheap. Okay, we'll do. If you do... I'll report back. If you do, pick up the first series and the third one, but skip the second one. They really cock the second series up with Whitechapel. And when you're ready, watch Edge of Darkness. Just watch, I, I watched that last night again. Well, the Mel Gibson <laughs> film, surely not. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, the first series of Whitechapel is one story told across, I think it's six episodes. Or is it two stories of three episodes each? No, I think it's one of six. Mm. But Who's then, the main actor in that? Uh, it's Rupert Penry Jones. But it's also got one of the guys from the League of Gentlemen. Um, Shearsmith. No, not Shearsmith. Um, Pemberton. Pemberton, Steve, Steve Pemberton. Pemberton. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. playing a more or less straight role. I must catch up with num- um, number nine as well. And so it's got... The first um, one of the new series of that, and that was great. Um, guy from Fires of Pompeii, the old punk rocker, uh, Phil Davis. Oh, yeah. I love Phil Davis. <laughs> I sold it. Well, Rupert Penry-Jones is the main investigating officer, but he is complete OCD. Mm-hmm. So the whole point of the series... Oh, hang on, my wife did watch that when it was on. Yeah, she, yeah. she thought it was great. Yes. She thought well, the great. whole point of the series is he's dealing with his OCD issues and Phil Davis is his second in command. And you can imagine what Phil Davis is like. He's like, what the F is going on with this guy with all this weird washing his hands every time he picks up a pen and all this kind of stuff. And then Steve Pemberton comes in as an outsider. He's not even a member of the police force. But they're tracking down like... a. I think it's like basically a. Oh, go on. I'm thinking I've seen some of it, yes. Jack the Ripper copycat. And Steve Pemberton comes in as a Jack the Ripper expert who helps them solve the case. Mm. Oh, it's not what I thought it was. It's not what I thought it was. Yeah. Right. But it's exceptionally good. Okay. It's good that we're talking about detective programs, actually. It's quite apt. Was that on purpose? No. Oh, it's just because I'd watched Broadchurch and I made a note of it because I, otherwise I might have forgotten to tell Simon because he's what been you, banging on about. What do you think of David Tennant's performance in it? He's so much better in Broadchurch than he is in Doctor Who. And uh, his second in command, uh, I can't remember her name. Charlotte Coleman. Um, no. Not Charlotte Coleman, what's she called? Charlotte Church. She was in the no, 11th like Coleman. Hour. Like Broadchurch. Eh? 11th yeah. Hour. She was in the 11th Olivia hour. Coleman. Oh, yeah. Olivia Coleman. with the big eyes. She, what I saw, was incredible in it. Oh, yeah. They both are very good in it. Mm. It's one of the few yeah. things I can watch with David Tennant in, to be honest. 
Except for dogs. <laughs> What's that one where he's on the horse and uh, a few centuries back? Castrovolva. Casanova, that's the one. Yeah, me and Simon are just giving each other... Well done, Lee, that's brilliant. Come on, that's good tongue action in Harry Potter, doesn't he? I... I've only, seen, I've only seen a little bit of him in Harry Potter. <clears throat> it is I love the is. tenant, leave him alone. Right, what are we doing next? Hey, that's it, we'll talk about... Oh, Gerard Gray says, Hello, Blue Box podcast team. I've really enjoyed your last few podcasts. It was great to hear your guests' memories of Rose when it was first broadcast. This would be referring to the two friends podcast I did, Lee, that you've not heard. What ifs? It took me back to that wonderful day ten years ago. I must also congratulate you on your excellent interview with Richard Marson about Verity Lambert. I never realised before how many great shows she produced after Doctor Who. Can't wait to read his book. Looking forward to your Tenant episode podcast. That's all for now. <coughs> Cheers, guys. Mm. Right, I've got another email that will save to the end and a couple of film reviews. But for now, let's talk about the Tooth and Claw. <laughs> Not really. We watched the last. The last? We watched The Unicorn and the Wasp. Literally 20 minutes ago. Mm. Okay, so Simon, first impressions. Well, when I say first impressions, I mean first impressions six, seven years on, whatever it is. I can't believe what a different programme we have now to then. That's the biggest thing. It's the biggest contrast that I, I, I never realised. I, I, I knew it had changed. And I remember in the early days of the... Uh, of the Matt Smith era, the Moffat era, that there were a few people saying, oh, it's not that different at all. Blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, it really is different. It really is different. It was subtle at first, and there was that transition period where it kind of mimicked the RTD era. But slowly but surely, and, and certainly the way it's filmed. Hmm. Um, and, and just the way it held together was almost two-dimensional in comparison. Uh, yeah. Um. There's uh, one thing I noticed about it is it was really safe television. There was nothing remotely alarming or odd or modern about it, even. It, when it was, when it did refer to little, it was a little bit risque in places, it was quite clunky. Oh, there's a couple of bits of dialogue. Mm. No, I'm talking about... I'm talking about the look and the feel of it. All oh, right, not the ginger beer joke. That was really, really no. funny. No. <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah, but even that is quite passe when things it like is, Queer yeah. as Folk have been on television. Mm-hmm. I found the whole um, thing hilarious. It was actually properly funny. I'd forgotten how funny Doctor Who was in places. Uh, the way it's delivered, David Tennant's delivery and, and uh, Catherine Tate together... Yeah, they're a great team, aren't they? I just, I, I don't know. The whole thing was very lightweight. Of course, it's all, it was all fun. It's a massive pastiche of, of, um, of, of Agatha Christie, and you know, I'm sure we're going to talk in depth. What, what are you holding? My I'm chin. trying to get your hand away from your mouth so the microphone can pick up what you're saying. He's <laughs> trying to get mm. bits of food mm. out of his beard. <laughs> mm, sausage. No, um, uh, no mapping on microphone, please. <laughs> <laughs> You hate that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. You're like Steve Pemberton. Uh-huh. Oh, no, whoever the ACG Rupert guy Rupert Henry was. James. Oh, yeah, that's him. Um, yeah, it's just fun. I just find it very lightweight. But you're right about the um, the look of it and the feel and tone of it. It feels like a Sarah Jane Adventures. The section that worked really well... Sorry, I've 
just smack my lips. I never do that. Um, I'll smack your lips if you want. With my fist. Uh, the bit that worked really well was the bit where they all sat around towards the end and Agatha Christie's doing a... Hmm. That works really well because it's static. It was it was really talky, wasn't it? That's yeah. It got to that very quickly. Mm. In fact, it's like 10 minutes and then the first scene where David Tennant sits everybody down and goes through the flashbacks. And that's like, okay, so they're condensing what would normally be like a 90-minute ITV murder mystery yeah, type thing exactly. into 45 minutes. But still, the mm. bit where he sits everybody down and talks them through the flashbacks is very early in the episode. And then there's a little bit more action, and then all of a sudden you're into this really long scene where they talk it all through. And it works right enough. Mm. I think it works I think it works better for a one time audience. Because as a one time audience, you don't get to the scene with the flashbacks and think, Well, hang on, we've not had enough of anything else yet because you don't know what's coming up. Mm. So you're not saying, Oh, this scene shouldn't be here because I know what comes up next and this should be later in the episode. As a one-time audience, you're just taking things as you go. But watching it back, because that must be the fourth or fifth time I've seen it, and I'm assuming probably something similar for you two. It's probably only the second time I've watched it. Oh, really? But still the second time. Mm. Watching it back, you're kind of aware of whereabouts in the episode you are. Mm. And so you start to sort of really notice things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it is almost a one-time watch, isn't it? You watch it and you know exactly what's going on. That's probably why it's become an average uh, episode. Is because you know you can watch it again for the enjoyment factor, but there's nothing deep there. You can't go any further down the line with it. Mm. It's, it's not linked to any of the other arcs in the series, nothing like that. Apart from she says bees, I think, once. Yeah. Um, it. Yeah. Do you know what I've, I've realised? I hadn't realised before that... The Unicorn and the Wasp is the title, right? Which is a mystery. Straight away, you think, oh, what's that mean? Yeah, Which yeah. is the whole point. And then, of course, we but we all said, hey, you know, why did they show the Wasp in the... Um, pre-titles. In the pre-titles. Because that was... I think that was a big mistake, showing the Wasp straight away. And then literally within about two minutes when he's meeting everybody in the garden, they mention the Unicorn being a thief. So straight away, the mystery of the Unicorn and the Wasp is almost half-solved, because you know that... Unicorn's going to turn up at some point. Well, they gave... In fact, if you look... When you watch it back now, for a second or a fifth or whatever time, there's so much given away. Mm. The very opening bit of dialogue after the titles have rolled is between the Reverend and the Professor. Mm. And the Professor says to the Reverend, right, I'm going to such and such a room. And the Reverend says, oh, are you? And then within 30 seconds, the Professor's in the room and somebody's murdering him. Well, who else could it be? The Reverend's the only person he's told. Yeah, and he also says that line, doesn't he, about, oh, it'd be the death of you, all that stuff. Yes. Oh, yeah, the Reverend says, oh, is that where you're going? That'll be the death of you, you know. Literally, if you're clever enough, you've worked out the entire episode in the first five minutes. But, Hmm. um, you know, I don't know. Which is why it works so much better for a one-time audience. And you have to look at it as a a light piece of TV. That's exactly what it is. And it is. And it works really well. As a piece of light TV, up until the last five minutes, where the ball is severely <laughs> dropped. It does, doesn't it? I think as soon as the car chase kicks in, isn't it? Yeah, or just as as they're uh, exiting the room, and yeah. the uh, all of a sudden the camera stops moving just as the action's kicking off. That's really weird, isn't it? I did notice <sighs> that you've, you've got this thing about Graham Harper's direction, about lots of static and oblique, all, all the oblique cameras ca- came back, all the... You know, like in Age of Steel, he had all those oblique 
on the ground angles. cameras angles. Thank you, looking up at people, and um, he had yeah, it here good. as well. That's all right, but was, you've got to be careful how you use it. It wasn't needed. It was only needed twice where somebody bent down to the ground, which was effective. But the moment where the wasp comes out and he's chasing the car, there's an oblique angle for no reason. <laughs> so oh. it doesn't do anything for the story. It doesn't tell the story. But I really like the few shots he did which were moving. So he had a tracking shot at the beginning. He had a crane shot. He had a handheld shot all in the first five minutes. And I thought, oh, this is going somewhere. This is Graham Harper actually picking up the camera and moving about. This is Graham Harper and doing an episode in the same block, I think, as Planet of the Ood. Oh, right, yeah. And Planet of the Ood is absolutely abysmal, directorially. And this is mostly better, but... The thing is, it, do, it does its job, okay? For, for kids, they're never going to notice this, really. They might wonder why they don't find this more exciting than any, uh, any other episode. Mm. And when they get to our age and they look at why, why you make a, a TV programme, you'll be then saying, well, that's because the director didn't move the camera or... I saw some really hokey edits there. There was a strange moment where David Tennant's looking at the camera close up and then he'd do a two shot literally straight after and it kind of jumps. It's almost like he jumps back. And that's a very strange choice to well, make. Some, well, you remember when we talked about Rose and I talked about coverage? Yeah. Which is, the, you know, the number of different angles you give to your editor to choose between. Mm. And some of the angles, is, there's a grammar of photography in cinema and television which is if you have a conversation between two people and you have two cameras yeah. and you film it first with one angle and then you film it again with another angle, if you're looking at the person on the left from the perspective of the person on the right, you will look over the person on the right's left shoulder mm -hmm. so that the person on the left is looking to the right and vice versa. Yeah. The person over the left, you look over the right shoulder so that the person on the right is looking to the right. And there were a couple of occasions in this where the grammar of photography was missed. You'd have an angle looking over one person's shoulder to see the other person in semi-profile. And then when it came to the reverse of the shot, either the person whose shoulder you should have been looking over wasn't in shot at all, and you were looking at the other person full on, or else you were looking at the other person exactly 90 degrees on so that you're looking from the side so you've seen one from an angle from yeah. 45 degrees and the other from 90 and those kind of things there are some things you do when you film television or movies like low angles a low angle represents one of two things either it's meant to show power it's either meant to show that the person you're looking at is more powerful than the person... Or sinister, but yeah. generally powerful, in some way powerful. Like the shot at the end of Unicorn and the Wasp, where he's about to change the vicar, mm. and you're all of a sudden looking up to him yeah. in the scene with the two thieves, Which works. because that's demonstrating his newfound power over these two people who've broken into the church. The other reason you have a low angle is because normally the camera will be at eyeline height so you'll be looking at everybody else from eyeline height and as a human being when you're interacting with people you're looking at them from eyeline height like the three of us here all have our eyes in line with each other if you take the camera down or up all of a sudden you're seeing things from a unnatural angle so you will introduce things like that into your grammar of photography 
in order to make things unnatural, mm. in order to give a feel of something sinister. But in this, you had strange angles, like you were saying, mm. alluding to just now, and strange choices in the edit, strange choices of angle over people's shoulder yeah. that aren't part of the grammar of trying to make something feel unnatural. They were just bad choices on made on the day. It didn't feel fluid. It almost feels like they didn't have enough in the can and they had to kind of scrabble around with what they've got. And, and they, you know, there were, there were moments, say, like it's the action. not that, but no. it is that with the action. There wasn't enough coverage on the action. And so they were left with long, long shots of cars driving uh, very slowly. And the wasp in the bedroom was another strange one. You had an extreme close-up on the eyes, you know, her kind of bending back with the, with the magnifying glass. All these... The action was odd in that, that bedroom sequence. I'd have filmed it completely different. There'd have been lots of handheld going on there. i tell you one thing that Eros Lynn used to do on Doctor Who a lot. If he had an action sequence and there was a long line of dialogue in, and in Russell T. Davis you'd often get a long line of dialogue in the middle of an action sequence, even just, oh my God, I'm going to get killed by a Christmas tree, that's like a second and a half, and in an action sequence, a second and a half is murder. It kills the sequence. Eros Lynn, if he had a line of dialogue that was even only as long as that, what he would do is film it twice, from the same angle, one in a medium shot and one in a close-up. Mm -hmm. And what he would do is cut between the two halfway through the line of dialogue mm -hmm. so you don't lose the performance of the actor who's saying the line, but you do maintain the kineticism of the action sequence. In this, what you've got is David Tennant and Catherine Tate driving the car, following Agatha Christie with the wasp flying up behind them. And he's got two angles on that. He's got two shots on that. He's got two takes on that. And one of them is Tennant and the other one's Tate. So all he can do is cut between Tennant and Tate. Mm -hmm. And one thing that some people in the edit, so I'm not laying this at Graham Harper's door, unless he was responsible for the edit, in which case it's his fault, one thing that some people would do in the edit to try and get the flow going a bit more and to try and keep the tempo up a bit more is that they won't always have the person who's speaking in shot. Mm. There will be a shot of Tate while Tennant speaking that will cut to Tennant yes. and then you'll have Tate speaking and it'll cut back to Tennant. Mm. And because it's doing that, subconsciously, your mind is moving ahead of the camera. Mm. And because your mind is moving ahead of the camera, it's forcing you to jump. Yes. And because it's forcing you to jump, you're making the energy of the shot yourself. Mm -hmm. The camera's not having to do the work. But what happened here is, he's got Tennant and Tate in the car, following the other car really slowly, and all the while Tennant's talking, the camera's on Tennant, and then when Tate starts talking, the camera moves to Tate, and it sinks it as an action shot, it just really, really weighs it down. It's, it's yeah, a shot right. dead flat. I mean, it, it, I didn't like the, the opening shot of the um, when the TARDIS landed, and it was straight flat on. Well, one thing Russell T. Davis mm. didn't like was handheld cameras. Mm. And Graham Harper apparently had to fight for the handheld bits during the poisoning oh, sequence. Okay. So credit oh, to him for see, that. That's the, best, that's the best sequence. Best in the whole thing. In the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, by far. Because it's got the handheld... You can do it without handheld. We watched Rose two weeks ago, and there's very little, if any, handheld in that. Only mm. uh, There's only handheld in that when absolutely necessary because there's nowhere to put the tripod or whatever, right? 
And that works. It works without it because Keith Boat got the coverage. But not just the coverage, but the right coverage that they could do it in the edit. And they cared enough making the first episode to do it in the edit. Whereas, see, the, the big problem that weighs down the unicorn and the wasp, as delightful as it almost was, but it's very complacent. Mm-hmm. It's a production team. I'm uh, I'm not saying not bothering to try because they obviously are bothering to try. Yeah, yeah. But it's a production team that are bothering to try, but aren't making those leaps of logic that bring out the magic. Yeah, the ticking boxes as opposed to yeah taking risks. The best way of doing this. Yeah, going back to that shot in the in the car. Yeah, they're saying just a, they're saying what's the best way of doing this, yeah. not what's the most imaginative way of doing yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. And and as a, that that the uh, car chase sequence. That that flat shot, it goes against all logic. Certainly, if you're drawing a comic, that if somebody's driving along in a car, the last thing you do is show them face on, because yeah. you negate all movement. You you get all impression of on movement. On the other side of the coin, was that the point? I I did think that you know the old fashioned 1930s films where you're driving along had the kind of um, you know the screen yeah, behind I them. Said, I was just, I was just going through where, my mind. Was he trying to aim it? Did he think, oh, that'll be a good idea. I'll try that, and it just didn't work. Yeah, maybe could be. Mate, you could be right actually. Yeah, and if the you same think of the old. The rest, um, I don't think he did Jimmy though, movies, because if you look at it. Yeah. If you look at it, he's not got enough of that no. to sell you that that's what he's trying to do. No. Because, that's I mean, you work. look at something like A Clockwork Orange, where they're doing exactly that, and that was 40 years ago. You know, nearly 45 years ago now. If Kubrick could do it then, why could Graham Harper not do it now? And, okay, film budget versus TV budget, but let's face it, for that shot, there's not that great deal of a difference in it. No. They just fudged it. They fudged the ending. Which is a shame because it kind of... It it doesn't ruin, but it brings down your impression of the thing as a whole. When it's written down, you know, Gareth Roberts wrote this and said, oh, car, car chase in, in Model T Fords or whatever it was, with the wasps chasing... You know, I mean, that sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. But then you get the real thing, and I know they had a struggle trying to actually drive them. They don't go that fast, so no. actually trying to make them look... Oh, the shot of Agatha Christie in the car screeching to a halt really slowly to make sure she doesn't skid on the grass. Yeah, I know. Funny, though. It kind of... Everything that's gone before... It's one of those episodes where if it had ended really well, you'd have been left with a really good impression. Mm -hmm. Because everything that's in it is... You know, it sounds like a real sort of slapdash compliment, but everything that's in it is quite good. You know, the the plot is quite good. Mm. It's nothing spectacular, but he crosses all the T's and dots all the I's and everything adds up. And like I say, when you watch it again, you can see all the pointers so you can work it out for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, everything's there from the bit where Catherine Tate walks into that room and picks up a teddy bear. You, you know what's coming. So it's all there. The plot works. And he's distilled it into 45 minutes, which is not an easy job with a no. kind of plot like that and he's got quite a few characters and it's quite wordy yes, I was going to say a lot of characters a lot of characters quite wordy as well mm. and it would make a great little book I think if, if that came out as a BBC novel or virgin novel which Gareth Roberts was very good at writing actually um, that would have worked really nicely and you could have put a lot more into it a lot more meat a lot more background a lot more character and I think it just would have read really nicely and I think again that's the point because it's kind of almost based on a Agatha Christie style murder mixed with Cluedo. 
Um, yeah. It, it's got a lot of sparkly dialogue. But, and here's another problem with it, I think. I've just missed the problem tonight. I know, I know, tonight, I know where you're I? going. <laughs> well, I think. I'm back to Graham Harper. Oh, okay. You weren't yeah. going to go on that. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going into the book titles. That's just yeah, horrible. It's done now. Yeah. <laughs> said it. <laughs> no, it's the director's primary obligation, responsibility is to the actors. And I think this is one of the reasons why Planet of the Ude is so bad. Because apart from Tim McKinnonary, uh, no, I didn't say that right. But <laughs> <clears throat> apart from him, yes. there's nobody else in Planet of the Ude really bringing it. So the rest of the cast in that story really aren't doing it justice. Oh, apart from the um, the chap who plays the uh, guy on the inside, who turns out to be working for the oh, yeah. environmentalist. Yeah, He's yeah. a really good actor as yeah, well. But a lot of the other actors in that episode really just aren't doing it. And this is Graham Harper to a T. Caves of Androzani, he's got a spectacular cast. Revelation of the Daleks, actually, he's got a spectacular cast. He doesn't need to direct them, because once you've got actors of that calibre, all you need to do is put the words in front of them, and they'll do it for you. And well, Case in point, every time Agatha Christie was on camera, it was, it, I well, was completely drawn in. Yeah, sparkling. I was just going to say, Unicorn and the Wasp, what a cast. And you look at even Felicity Jones in that now, it's in like Oscar-nominated material and stuff. And the rest of that cast have all gone on to do better things even, mm. apart from the ones who were brought in because they were classic faces from before. Like... Um, Felicity Kendall. And... Drago. Um, yeah. Drago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. But... He's excellent. Well, so this is like... Okay, here's an analogy, a sports analogy. A manager can come into a football team and buy the 11 most expensive players in the world and stick them on a football pitch and they can be dreadful. Mm. Or he can buy the 11 most expensive players in the world and take them off to the training ground and get them to work together as a team and put them on the pitch and they can be magical. Or he could buy the 11 most expensive players in the world and this is your most likely outcome. And work with them enough so that when you put them on the pitch, they do a job. And with the unicorn and the wasp, I'm thinking, this is a great cast doing a job. They're not creating magic. You know, they're not the No, perform- you see, Felicity Kendall's acting her heart out. I think she's brilliant in this. And, and Jago, of course. Christopher yeah, and they're Benjamin. kind of individually doing quite good jobs or very good jobs uh, for the, but they the don't but feel not like really... a couple who've lived together for 40 no, years exactly no. exactly that's it okay. and that's the director's job to make them feel like a couple who've been living together for 40 years yeah. and that's the director's job to make the guy who's the vicar who turns out to be her son really feel like he's her son yeah that didn't feel like truth either no i loved i loved him i thought he's great he was see the, the script part. does it's... it there's no failing in the script the script does it <laughs> And the actors coming in know what's required of them yeah. because it's an Agatha Christie pastiche. And most of them have probably done Agatha Christie or has at least seen the way Agatha Christie's done, right? Mm. So they all know what's required. But it's the best directors. They've got that little bit of magic, you know, that little bit of alchemy that produces something incredible. See, the potential's there to do something quite quirky because I, I started to sort of studying it and thinking is it 
sometimes are the characters not are, are they kind of losing depth because they're supposed to be caricatures like yeah. it is an episode of Cluedo do you remember mm. the ITV drama of yeah, Cluedo yeah, yeah. Well, they are literally like comic characters but that but can then, work that can work as long as the director and the actors understand that that's what they're all yeah, doing all on the same page it's like we're saying about that shot you know the, the car shot where yeah. was it trying to be funny yeah, was it trying to be like an old film? And yeah. then that needs to transfer through the whole episode. I tell you what yeah. this was, and conversely what it wasn't, Time Heist. In Time Heist, everybody understood that they were doing a pastiche of Hustle, and they did the pastiche of Hustle, and they brought the heart of the characters out. Mm. This, everybody understood that they're doing a pastiche of Agatha Christie, and left it at that. Mm basically, mm. so that when you yeah. get the revelations at the end, they should be tugging on the heartstrings. They're just the revelations at the end. Yeah. I mean, it's David Tennant, uh, you know, talking at a million miles an hour, giving you all the answers. <clears throat> and as much as I love him doing that, I could watch him forever doing that, you just want things to unravel in a particular way that gets you going as a, as a viewer. And it... I, I can't quite like the old-fashioned talky bit at the end, which you would use, you would get in the seventies or Miss Marple or whatever. That talky bit at the end, lots and lots of talking. But um, I don't know. It, it was strange. It was a bit bitty in places. Really. The whole thing was a bit. It kind of unbalanced the episode a bit because it's all very well to have a ten-minute talking scene in a ninety-minute drama, but to have yes. a ten-minute talking scene in a forty-five-minute drama is perhaps a bit too much with an action sequence that just didn't move. I've got to say, we're being really down on this episode, and yet all three of us enjoyed it. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were laughing a lot. Yeah. We were laughing well, a lot. The one well, thing, you then, well, Gareth Roberts. I think <clears> one <throat> thing it is, yeah, I think Gareth Roberts is a natural comedy writer, actually. Oh, and, and you know, obviously being a Donna fan, which, you know, I can't believe I've not watched <laughs> that since first transmission, but probably for the reasons you said, which is it, there isn't Enough. much more to discover, apart from maybe the flaws in it. But there, there's, there's not that much lovely... substance, really. No. Well, it could have had more substance if they'd have brought more heart into those revelations, because those revelations were pretty substantial. But yeah. it's just that they came across as quite flimsy. My yeah. favourite bit, though, going back to Catherine Tate, was the noddy speech. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to say yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, she was there. She held that for that yeah. that period of time. It was quite a long. And she's probably that's her best episode mm. because in a, the. There are a couple of moments in that episode where she suddenly turns into Shouty Donna. Mm. And I'm not a fan of that because I think when she turns into Shouty Donna, all of a sudden, she, instead of accessing you know, the real heart of the character, she's accessing the characters from a comedy show. Yeah. 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 And there's only perhaps two instances in that entire episode where she does Shouty Donna and they're both pretty brief over pretty quickly. It's the Wasp, isn't it? Where she's <clears throat> shouting at the Wasp, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when she comes out of the the room and yeah. goes, says, "When I say it's an enormous, I mean a ginormous." I found that quite amusing. I thought that worked because she's in shock and she reverts back to her original Donna-esque kind of ways. Because yeah, we must maybe. forget where she comes from and what she becomes. Mm. There's quite an interesting moment where she goes to Agatha Christie. You know, you're brilliant. You know, only you could find this strange thing in the bushes. And she's doing. She's been the Doctor. To, you know, the foreshadowing. We have this with Martha, you know, turning into a version of the Doctor, but more soldiery one, and with Rose, of course, also getting that. And all the companions eventually turn into, you know, him in a way, different versions of him, which Davros brings up at the end of the series. But I like those little touches. I don't know whether it was completely on purpose, but she was definitely had that 
little bit of Doctor in her, and she was changing midway in the series to become something quite special. Probably. Probably. Accidental. <laughs> Probably. I don't That's know. Because... three minutes talking. <laughs> but you know, the worst thing about that is that Planet of the Ood goes out as episode number three and ends with the Ood foreshadowing, not just foreshadowing, but foretelling, rather, what's going to happen at the end of the series. It's like, there's some really odd choices there have been in series two and series three, but especially here in series four, some really odd choices about things like that. It's like build to the moment where there's a foretelling of doom. Mm. Don't foretell doom at the start and then sort of, you know, twiddle your thumbs for six episodes before you come back to it. It's like the Doctor's song is ending soon, right? The ood of foretelling that David Tennant's about to regenerate into Matt Smith. He doesn't regenerate into Matt Smith for another two years. He's only been the Doctor two years at this point. Mm. <laughs> so this is like uh, telling a man who's 40, oh, you're going to die when you're 80, and then says, oh, God, I'm really worried about that, you know. I've yeah. got 40 years well, to go I mean, before I get there. Halfway through. Yeah. Midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that just felt, like, really odd, and I know that's not the episode we watched, but mm. I do think they're all tied together. Mm. Um... Don't know performances apart from what I've just said. The... What about the unicorn? <sighs> Did she work uh, no. being a you know a bit of a, a London? Well, it worked. A new stander. I wouldn't say it's the greatest performance. Well, I mean, it's Jones, so she feels more natural when she's yeah. playing the character that's not supposed to be natural in the end than she does when she's playing the Cockney at the end, mm. and so. That's kind of that's one of those things you've just got to take, I suppose, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If you're yeah. going to do that... But you... it was another one of those weird moments where a character wouldn't necessarily... There was a few moments in this, where, like you say, where characters weren't reacting properly. So she's discovered. So she goes and stands and goes, oh, all right then, you knobs, you know, pull me in and throws the... Yeah, turns uh, into... Um, what's her face of EastEnders? But, I mean, you know, surely if you're... Captured. I was gonna say cat butcher. If you're captured, mm. um, you know, are you gonna hang around? Or you, what? You just get out, you know, or do well, something. This, the, but again that, it, slots, cause... that slots into the Cluedo thing. If they were gonna go down that route, then you'd kind of accept it because it's one yeah. big caricature, but um And the same with Felicity Kendall when she very quickly skips over her time in India, uh, when she discovers her husband's a giant wasp. Or a boyfriend, rather. And it's and like, she says, oh, well, well, I loved him so much, I, loved I didn't much. mind. I didn't mind. And that, that line was like, oh, that was delivered brilliantly because it made us move on to the next bit quite quickly and go, oh, yeah, I completely believe you, Felicity. That's, 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 that's exactly yeah, actually, how I yeah. would feel. But that... what? Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> well, we stop and think about it, yeah. See, that would work brilliantly in a novel because you could spend almost half a chapter explaining that relationship and why, mm. and you would believe it. But in one well, line... It's not a new it's... idea anyway, is it? You've had that sort of thing before in... Did we? Um, let me think. Let me Zarby. think. About I'll think of something. No, I'll think of another <laughs> program where somebody's had a barber in the sun. A relationship with an alien. You're with probably an thinking of City of Death, where Catherine Schell has a relationship I'm for not, many years with Julian Glover I'm and his big green one eye. Not necessarily thinking about Doctor <laughs> Who. I'm not necessarily thinking about Doctor Who. Live it with me. Do I have to come up with an example from Doctor Who, otherwise you can't say it's happened before. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you can, but you I can't. Then. I can't. Anything Not else? Instantly, anyway. I agree about the 
unicorn, by the way. That's kind of... It's almost, it's a red herring. That character is a red herring. Yeah. It's a case of... There's a murderer on the loose, but there's also a thief on the loose. So it's supposed to tie them up in the audience's mind that the thief was bound to be the murderer, right? Mm. So when you come to that scene at the end where... There's some of the bits where David Tennant's pointing around at one person. It was you, Donna Noble. It was you, Agatha Christie. It was you, Lady Edmonton or whatever she's called. Quicker cuts, quicker edits would have made that work better. Yeah, actually, that was a bit plodding, wasn't it? But the point being... Oh, there's me using the word point again. But it's taken me 44 minutes, so I get away with it that time. (laughs) But the thing is, here he is doing the red herrings one after another and so you're going around the table thinking right there's a red herring there's a red herring there's a red herring there's a red herring knowing that one of them he gets to is not going to be the red herring but and it's a problem if it's a problem at all of the way the script works is that you have got the people having to accept the red herringness of it Mm. the people are sitting around the table having to accept the red herringness of it rather than arguing with the points he's making. For instance, when he says, it was you, Donna Noble, and she says, well, it wasn't me. And he says, <laughs> and he says, it was you that made me think of it. If he'd have said, in real life, if he'd have said, it was you, Donna Noble, not only would have she have been going, well, it wasn't me, but everybody around the rest of the table would have been saying, well, how can it be her? She only turned up when you turned up. Yeah. And all this kind of yeah. stuff. So you, all the all the naturalness of it yeah. is taken out for that entire <laughs> sequence. All the power is entirely and totally with you know in front of him. So what you've got to do is either uh, direct the actors to make it seem natural and keep the flow up, so that the unnaturalness of it you're not given time to see the unnaturalness of it, mm. or else you've got to play it as unnatural, and it kind of kind of fudged that by falling somewhere in the middle didn't it so you weren't quite sure it didn't i tell you what it didn't do and this is graham harper's not a comedy director and you look at caves of androzani and planet of the ood it doesn't do comedy so although it's a very funny script what graham harper isn't doing and any comedy timing there is is coming out of the actors but not from the editing not from the directing. The beats aren't quite right in places. And no. that's, that's why the handheld works so well, because it's almost a one-shot. It isn't. It's, it's a Two, of I think, yeah. But, it, it, you know, the way that it's moving around, can't you can't really edit that too poorly when you're moving cameras like that, actually. You can pretty much edit between two moving when cameras you're quite on the... well. It's much easier than two static cameras. Yeah, and also, you, uh, because he's got the moving cameras, he's holding the shots a lot. Well, I would say he's holding the shots a lot longer, but there are some shots in that story that are held for way too long. But, yes, it allows the comedy to come out of the actors rather than out of the edit. <clears throat> one last moan. <laughs> Just one last moan. And it's actually a Catherine Tate moan, strangely. that um, Obviously, it's in the script, and she's she's acting the words. She's saying the words. But I think a bit of more reaction about the dead body on the floor would have been quite good, because she's standing. You can there's a shot where the doctor's on the floor picking up the bit of goo, and then there's a a, a dead, bloodied, bald head, and then her legs, 
and then they you know pulls up to her talking and she goes the plucky young girl blah, 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 blah. and you think there's a dead man in front of you you, you just need to react a little bit even if it's like Mm. Plucky and, young man. And to bring up that other episode again, this is after Planet of the Ood, where she's the one exactly, who gets all emotive over what's happening with the Ood, right? And that should have been a turning point for that character. Should have been. Whereby everything that happens afterwards. And that fires of Pompeii is another great example, actually, yeah. where she insists he goes back and saves somebody. This is a character for whom ever afterwards there should be no moments where she doesn't have empathy. For what's going on. Absolutely. And I think that was the one mistake that's made in the script. But um, then I but think also she could have performed the, perform the words but was looking down with empathy. But I think that's all. If it's I'm a simple thing. If I'm not remembering wrong, this was the very first one they filmed for series four. It was either the very first or the very last. Mm. I'll probably find out it was the very last now, no, but I think it must have been the first. Because I if I remember rightly, they filmed this and then Planet of the Ood was the first block. Uh, maybe that's why she's more shouty in this one. No, I think she was less shouty. I think she's more shouty in the other episodes. Okay. Dunno. Dunno, I could be wrong about that, but that's how I remember it. I'm probably completely wrong. Was there a comic strip or something like that in which a Zygon pretended to be a human and was a husband to a wife? I'm just trying to think. I'm still thinking about them. <laughs> Ten minutes later. Is this a... This, isn't this the... is not me saying Gareth Roberts <laughs> is using someone else's idea. This is just uh, something. You're trying to come up with a precedent, aren't you? No, no, no. I'm just. Yeah. It's it bugging was me one of I... these unofficial fan film things. Was it? Yeah, and sort of. Well, they licensed these for the Zygons, and there was a thing, and it was just called Zygon, I think. I've never seen it, and apparently it's a bit. Um, a racy. Racy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, apparently lots they're of suckers. Lots of nipples. Really. I don't know, I think so, I suppose so. I've never seen it. It'd be inverted, wouldn't they, for a Zygon? Just no, this would be on the wife. <laughs> oh, I see, right. Well, unless she's the Zygon, I don't know. Well, so actually, they probably don't doing. have them, because they, they, they suck the nipple of the Scarison for milk. Let me get my suckers on your <laughs> mammary fingers. Lactating Scarisons. Yeah, all right. Let's I move know on. the history of my Zygon, all right. <laughs> <clears throat> Should we mark it? We should. Have I, we got I, more to say? Can I just say something positive? Yeah, yeah. I did actually really enjoy that. I think, yeah, we I, all did, apart actually. Apart from the last five minutes, like you said. Yeah, yeah. It was actually quite an up episode. Yeah, actually, that's the problem. That last five minutes is the last thing we saw before we came to the table to talk about it, yeah. right? And like I said, it, it was it was everything. Well, I think symbolically, it was that limp throw of Donna throwing the thing in the water mm. that kind of symbolised that. Whole oh, sort. and then you brought up some points, Simon, while we were watching that bit about the logic of it. Oh, about the um, why Agatha Christie is linked. Yeah, why she? Yeah, it wasn't she wasn't linked. It was she the was... book that Lady Edison was reading that was I know, linked. And it, if anything, there was, this, there was this line about the that it linked itself to Agatha's thought processes. But it had how, it, it, how in depth was that? She book? wrote the books, but it was, it was Lady Edison's was thought process. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know where, <clears throat> why that. Plot but I just hole. thought maybe if at some point it had invested, knowing that the, the if the child had realised, made that connection that her his mother loved Agatha Christie, then maybe he would have sought out her at some point. Maybe he was the contact that got her there to the to the dinner party. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't, and it? then made that link in that respect in yeah. order to please the mother. 
Well, yeah, but the it's point a... was it had to be out of her actual thought processes, didn't it? Yeah. There's a to kind work. of paint-by-numbers to a lot of RTD stuff, isn't there? I mean, like you, we mentioned earlier about the... He, he must have said to Gather Roberts, I want to make sure we can cram as many titles of the books in as possible. Uh, there's a bit where she goes missing and she loses his memory. We need to explain that somehow. Mm. So Gareth has gone off to maybe write this, and he's done a really great script, and he's had to crowbar these little bits in. And maybe that was just kind of not quite thought out enough I don't know it's just a weird thing to it just it's wasn't a bit of extra jeopardy at the end as well I yeah. like the idea of it it just doesn't work with the logic does it no it's one of those leaps of faith you make like in you're supposed to in Last of the Time Lords with a neural net and all that sort of thing isn't yeah, it but that's the whole thing about the giant wasp is like a bit of a sort of misunderstanding anyway the book he fetches that book out at the end right and it's got a giant wasp and an aeroplane on the yeah. front. And that's a genuine Agatha Christie book cover, right? It is. But the but the thing about it is the wasp is not a giant wasp in the story. It's just a regular-sized wasp mm-hmm. that the artist who's painted the front cover of the book has drawn much closer in <laughs> yeah. his sort of eye line than the plane. The plane's in the background, the wasp's in the foreground. Yeah. So, it's so not... they've kind of taken this giant wasp thing and run with it but it's kind of almost like a misunderstanding of what that cover represents. And it's the whole thing about this story is, okay, we're going to do something supernatural with Agatha Christie because it's Doctor Who. You can't just do a murder mystery. There has to be a supernatural element, an alien element. So what have we got from Agatha Christie's background that we can use for supernature? Because we've done Shakespeare and we did The Witches from Macbeth. So that's already in Shakespeare. Mm, mm. So we're just adapting something Shakespeare's already done. We did Dickens and we had the ghosts. And that's already in Dickens. So we're only adapting something that was already there. Agatha Christie, what have we got? Well, there's this book cover with a big wasp on it. Mm. It's like, okay, there's a straw to be clutched at or else come up with an idea of your own. And the choice they made was to clutch at the straw. I love a giant wasp. It's great. Giant wasps are great in Doctor Who, aren't they? But the the cover doesn't really like, fit the story. All, though, all does he it? needed to have said was, "Oh, it's, it's gone through, you know, into a, a brain, and she's never forgotten it." And and she'll go, "What? There's a giant wasp in a detective story?" And you go, "Oh no, no, it's not giant. It's just a tiny one." But you know, that, that's all he needed to do is throw that line into explain well, to everybody because you're going to go out and buy that book. But no, but in, in the episode itself, right? The alien who reacts to the stimulus that's coming in from around it hence the scene where we see it sort of uh, absorbing lady edison's thoughts as she's reading agatha christie and that's why it does the murder mystery Mm. all we need to see is that it's also absorbed this bit with the giant wasp on the book cover and takes on the aspect of the wasp so when we originally see it in the flashback scenes to India, right? It's not a wasp in those scenes, it's something else. Yeah, that would be good. That would have worked. That would have worked, yeah. Okay, and so then you set it at some point after that novel comes mm-hmm. out, so you have to skip the Agatha Christie goes missing for 10 days. It doesn't really work, but the ways but around the, it, the, the ways you can is, do it. The other thing is, it was very confusing because we were all looking for clues as to what was going to happen in the series, and the bees kept coming up. She even mentions it in this episode. Oh, the bees, right? And it's not, it's a wasp, and it's completely unrelated. I know, and it's like So a, why not make it a bee, a giant bee, and connect it somehow to the Ark? Why not? Just, you know... Well, you or if you can... Know. about the buzzing, though, haven't you? It's the, that's the... 
But the thing, yeah. the what you've done here is <coughs> you've come up with this arc, which lasts for your whole series, and you've decided that one of the aspects of that arc that you're going to refer back to is the bees going missing. Well, what you don't do then is a completely unrelated story with a giant bee in it or a giant wasp in it or something, because mm. that's not a red herring. No. It's like when Stephen Moffat did the Gangers yeah. in series six. That mm. was a deliberate red herring, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. We, we all took it as a deliberate red herring, and it was built into that story arc so that it would deliberately throw people off the scent. Here he's throwing a giant bee in, uh, just entirely coincidentally. You know, it's neither a red herring nor is it a clue to the arc. Mm. It's just entirely coincidental. So you either save that story for another series, or you d don't use the bee, you use something else. Yeah. Because the bee wasn't exactly relevant to the plot. Could have had it as a giant zombie. Well, it could have been anything. It's not like, if you're going to use a giant bee or a wasp or whatever, you have, if you're going to use something giant from nature, you have to use something that is, um, unique to that creature in nature like the sting yeah right the only time we ever get to see the sting is when it's stuck in the door and that's an and irrelevance. It another one straight away yeah but that's an irrelevance to the plot <laughs> if you're going to use something that has a sting you have to use the sting to solve the plot that's how Chekhov's yeah, gun works it doesn't whatever. solve it does it? it just it just moves it along a little bit it doesn't even move it along it leaves the sting in the door and they see the sting yeah, but he takes the goo and does it. But he's already mission. taken the goo off the floor it's before, true. so you it's don't true. need the sting to yeah, be there no, to get the goo. Um, the fact wait. that it's a bee didn't or didn't use wasp, a sonic whatever. in this, did he? There was no sonic screwdriver in this, by the way. Uh, it's he very easy. use it to look at the... No, he doesn't, does he? No, I don't think there is. It's very easy yeah. to pick, pick holes, but I think what I would have done is the sting, it withdrew the sting, just left a big hole. And they, they, there's an, an extra element, element of disbelief from the people who find her. And, yeah. and then... The doctor finds something. He yeah, thinks, maybe. Hang on. We really have picked some holes in this story, haven't we? We have. It's a shame because I, I mean, I, I like it. I, I still like it. I do. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Finn, Finn loves it as well. So, and it's funny. It is really genuinely funny. That's what we forget about it's that. Great it's great dialogue. Era. Mm. The dialogue is the thing that we forget. Mm. You go back to watching RTD stuff. And you go, oh, I like this because the the dialogue's really fun and silly and wonderful. Um, and that's the thing that you kind of forget about. And sometimes it's mood as well. We're in an analytical mood, and I would oh, yeah, watch that another time, not think about it too much, and just go with the flow. Well, so. your girls may end up watching it in the future and just think it's really great fun. Yeah, but that's the thing of it. I think Doctor Who of the last five years has rewarded analysis more than Doctor Who of the five years before that. Probably, mm. there's more depth and texture. I think mm. not that there wasn't depth and texture before, but the depth and texture that we had under Russell T Davis didn't have the breadth that it does now, I don't think. No. And also, at the end, we get to see a bit of silence in the library. Um, and you kind of said it almost like, oh, silence of the library. Yeah. It's on next week. <laughs> mm. But um, there was that really hokey ending with the scream and the, 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 the skeleton. Oh, the edit of the uh, next time trailer <laughs> was dreadful, wasn't it? Was, it? <laughs> it was terrible, yeah. But again, that also feels like it, it. It's just needed some grading on on it or something. Well, we said at the I end. I always said it's too clean that episode. Mm. Kind, of, kind of like that. I like the look of it. Silence in the library. Yeah, yeah. but it, feels it kind like of looks like something like THX or Gattaca, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, not quite. Anyway, we're not reviewing that one. No, I, don't, okay. I don't think. I don't think it. It I never sold it to me. Brilliant loving. idea. Brilliant idea with the shadows. Fant- I mean, shadows. The shadows are, are, are killers. Mm. You could do so much more with that. I just didn't think the library was the right. You know, if you had a library, you make it an old library, not a brand new spangly library. I don't know. That's just. It had to be a brand new spangly library to have the technology. Yeah, to... yeah, 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 yeah. But Vashti Narada, don't know. It's Vashti Narada. Vashti Narada wasn't the original idea for the library, was it? Oh, oh the Weeping Angels was the original idea for the library. Oh, see, that would have worked. But then he Moffat was supposed to be doing the Dalek two-parter in series three. And then he was going to do Weeping Angels in the library in series four. And when he, because Dalek was two parts in series three, and he was doing something else, I don't know, perhaps Jekyll? Or maybe it would have been the Spielberg film. Probably the Spielberg film, thinking about it. He was doing the Spielberg film, and he said, look, I just haven't got time to do two parts, but I can do one. Mm. And Ross T. Davis said, okay, but then obviously it's not going to be the Daleks anymore. And Moffat said, that's okay, I'll use the Angels. And I'll use something else in the library in series four. And that's why you get the angels in Blink. And that's why you get the Vashti Narada in the library. Mm-hmm. It worked out quite well. Oh, it's, a, it's a brilliant two episodes. It's just, again, it's the filming, I think, and the direct, direct, directorial. It's all right, actually. It's directed quite well. The, the, the actors and everything were good. But it's just the light, lighting. That's what I get a problem with. The lighting in this... On the on the bee or on the wasp, I just you know I know that's a pink light. I know that's a a giant pink light under that person's face. Don't do that because oh series we four. are not stupid. Series four was all about the giant pink lights and the giant green lights and the I giant to, orange lights. I remember sitting down with a guy once um, who was uh, had to mark a whole load of students' films. We spent an entire evening watching around about forty student films, and yeah, thirty eight of them were absolutely dire, and two of them were pretty good. But one of the main problems is when they were filming inside and they're told to use lighting, it was so garish. Everybody got it wrong. And I'm not joking. Tonight, watching that, it was exactly the same. Those two scenes with the boys stealing... The, oh, how bad were they? Yeah. <laughs> boys stealing the crockery. <laughs> not the crockery, but, you know, the, the, the metal and the silver or whatever. And he's turning into the bee and the purple lights on them. It's like, I know that's a light. You know, do something else. You don't need to have that. That was a big thing they had in series four. They did it so they much in the Sontara and two parts. That's the one that not, yeah, the lighting. Because that time. is directed by Douglas McKinnon and he does a other than the it's lighting. It's just the lighting. Yeah. Everything else is all right. Well, that's a. Actually, if you watch those two episodes back to back, there's a real sense in the direction and the editing of, you know, an increased franticness as it goes towards the end. It really builds. Watch the two episodes separately and it doesn't work quite as well. But mm. no, that's really well directed. And the thing that really drags the Santara and Supada down, apart from this kid. Is which kid? The uh, bright spark who's in league with the Santara. Well, yeah. I quite liked him, <sighs> I think, if I remember right. He's no. supposed to be annoying, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is, anyway. to be fair. Oh, there's only one Rattigan and he's the baddie and Basil the Great Master Detective. <laughs> Right, let's mark the unicorn and the wasp. Ooh. Out of ten. <laughs> yeah, out of ten. Integers. Oh, six. Mm. I was going to say a five, but I'll drag it up to a six for the humour and performances. Yeah. I was going to say seven, but 
Yeah, I don't know. No, I think I'll go with a seven. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I did think about that, but I think it's the lighting in that last five minutes. That's kind of not a good few points off of it. It's kind of... I like the script. And the edits. I like the script and I like the actors. And that and the carries... Music good. Mm, and that carries an awful lot of it. It's just the editing and the camera work that really lets it down. Mm, I'm probably being quite harsh with the six. And there's even some nice camera work in it, yeah. I think it's a seven. Yeah. Six and a half. Six. You can't change it. Two no, six, six, six is seven. good. Six is good. Yeah. Yeah. Murray Gold's work was good over it as well. That's perfectly timed. His comic beats. His I didn't were notice great. it. Exactly. That's why you're not supposed. To. That's when you don't notice it. It means it's good. If you notice it, it's that's t- a it's bit in of a cliche about music. If you don't notice it, it's good. But there are occasions, and the Star Wars films are a perfect example when you are supposed to notice the music. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. When and it's asked, as though it's Murray not Gold always. It's not always the case that if you don't notice it, it's good. But if you if you notice it in a negative way. Yeah, so like um, the Matt Smith regeneration scene is too loud. All that music's too loud. Time crash, too loud. It's all in the way. It's telling you to be, oh, we've got to be fun. This is a funny sequence. We've got to laugh. It's really loud. You can't hear the dialogue. There are moments when that happens, but I think it's more an editing fault. In Star Wars, you know, when you've got things like all the X-Wings are coming in and it's a, a fight sequence, a dogfight. Yeah, you need that pumping powerhouse of a sound just like the day of the doctor at the end or every time you get a uh, an establishing shot of a sure. imperial fighter in space and it goes yeah. bam, bam, <laughs> ba, bam, bam, ba, bam. yes yeah you're supposed to notice the music there yeah because yeah. it tells you yeah. you're up each for character's some... got its own theme it's, it's... sure yeah. yeah it tells you you're up for some darth merengue darth what merengue Darth Merengue. Who's that? Oh, Garth Merengue. Yeah, I was being God. funny. <laughs> I was thinking about Ferengue from Star Trek. And yeah. I was thinking, what are you talking about, Darth Merengue? Right, I've got two film reviews in there. <laughs> email. <laughs> film reviews first, email after. Or should we do the email first and stick with Doctor Who? You'll be quite proud of us. We watched a film that was on your top five list. Who did? We did. Well, you and Simon? Yeah, separately. I went and bought it. You did? Yeah, can you guess what it is? Did you buy it, or did he lend it to you? Time after what? time. What, Idiocracy? Yeah. Oh, Idiocracy. Oh, well, you'd already talked, seen it. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it on here. Well, yeah. what did you but think of it? I just talked about it. <laughs> How much did it cost you? Uh, it cost me 1p on Amazon, plus 2.98 posted packing. Whatever it was. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. ridiculous. Loved it. Absolutely hilarious. It's an yeah. absolutely brilliant film. Funny, and it's really rude, of course. It's uh, it's, it's lewd. It's, there's a lot of swearing in it. There's it's, an awful lot of swearing, lot of swearing in it. It, it, it is it's, it's quite it. frightening. Like yeah, I, say, it's it's like, I see this happening. Yeah, You know, there are some... You can mo- see it happening now. Yeah, but there, watch there are some things in it which you kind of go, well, if they're that thick, how come the machinery still works? But again, you can make, you know, you can talk about it forever and, and put, put kind of excuses in. But it's not that's not needed. That's it's not the that, point. The of whole it, point yeah. of it is just it is a massive laugh. And um I thought, oh, should I be showing my fifteen year old son this? I thought, oh, maybe not yet, he can wait a few years. I came home and he, he was watching the end of it. And he, <laughs> I said I said, What do you think? He went, This is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, and we were quoting it quite a bit. 
You know, the Great film. people who made Idiocracy are now actually giving me backhanders for the amount of times I'm actually <laughs> on this podcast. It's great. It's funny. It's a brilliant film. Yes, it is. Dear Blue Boxers, I just listened to your last podcast all about Rose. It was quite good again. For some reason, <laughs> you know already who this is from, don't you? For some reason, you started talking about your favourite songs. My favourite song is Boys by Sabrina. That had a very nice video, which I watched lots of times until my hand got tired. Simon was talking about his favourite songs, and JR kept talking about his Sphinx. I was quite upset about that, as I don't think you should have such filth on your podcast. When he had finished going on about his Sphinx, JR started going on about his point, and then about his thing. This made Simon go all funny, and he started talking about Tom Baker, who he said was off his tits. I found this very sad. I found this very sad, as I have never once gone off tits. It turns out that Lee is a fan of One Direction. Wand Erection. Is that what he's written? Yeah, which is also a bit sad. That's actually quite good. Have <laughs> <laughs> you never come across that before? No. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I'm an idiot. I quite like the bit where you started talking about Rose and the bit with Sergeant Benton who now has a show on TV all about his balls, which apparently he has indoors on the studio floor. I would have thought they would get cold doing that. He's talking about the edge. Oh, okay. Were you not here when I talked about the edge? (laughs) I don't know what you want about. Questions and bowling. Yeah. Was I here? Quiz show with bowling in the afternoons at three o'clock. Oh, yeah. Oh, what? Really? He does that, does he? Mark Benton. Oh, God. God, just keep reading for God's sake. <laughs> Simon likes Jennifer Garnish. So do I. She is very pretty and does spying. I have done quite a bit of spying in my time, which is why I am no liar. <laughs> I am no longer allowed in New Look. <laughs> this should be a column somewhere. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not sure I can read out the next bit. Well, I probably can. You all talked about the bit in Rose where she goes for a pisser with Milky and she doesn't realise that he is all plastic. I think this is because she is used to having a plastic friend. She certainly had one when she was on her other show where she took her clothes off and made lots of cheese. It was called The Secret Dairy of a Core Girl and I liked it very much. Secret Dairy. Again, that's good. Matt Smith was in it once and he obviously remembered her from when he was David Tenninch. Anyway, it was good and I enjoyed it. Simon talked a bit about the Bongelic woman. I like this show as well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the original had Lindsay Wanger in it and she was lovely. When it came back recently, it had Lady Christina from Plant of the Deaf in it and she was also lovely. I preferred her as Lady Christina though as she was in leather for that one and my hand got tired again. Rosa's mum was played by Chamomile Couture who was very nice... <laughs> She's always going to be Camomile Couture now. <laughs> Who was very nice and also very easy. I liked the bit where the doctor was in her bedroom and she said, there's a strange man in my room, anything could happen. If I had been in her room, then something would have happened. Oh, yes. Later on, you talked about moonlighting with Bruce Forsyth and Cyril the Shepherd. <laughs> Cyril was very lovely and was a bit posh, so wore lots of different clothes, which showed her off well. I liked it, although Bruce didn't, because he lost all his hairs and started <laughs> swearing a lot. 
Finally, Simon wanted a Moira Stewart action figure. I have one of these. It is life-sized and sits at the desk. We can just fit under when she reads the news out. I have to go now as it is six o'clock and the news is about to start. So I will talk to you again next time. Your friend, Sherag Jeers. Do you not preview this before you read it out? <laughs> I did with this one, but it didn't help. <laughs> I feel this show is a bit like uh, the Unicorn and the Wasp, where you had a full 40 minutes of absolute pure genius, and that last five minutes was a bit dodgy. Oh, don't worry, i got film reviews. Oh, all right. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> a few people might think the opposite. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, some people think Sharak's emails are the highlight of the entire podcast. And sitting here looking at you two. They were funny. I've got to say, I'm one of those people. They were funny. Yeah, go on then. What films have you watched? Well, I watched two films in a week. <laughs> Sorry, is that supposed Never to be happens. An, that's an achievement, is it? No, I'm going to talk about the one I watched second first. Okay. Because the one I watched second was called The Last Survivors, which is a post-apocalypse thing. Ooh. Yeah, but not so much, because it kind of... Mm. trying to You know The Hunger Games is like... Yeah. Well, there's this big thing now since Twilight, right, of teen sci-fi. And uh, there's been quite a bunch of films lately which have kind of been sort of teeny versions of... There's a teeny version of... Uh, well, Hunger Games is almost like a teeny version of Westworld or something like that, really. Yeah. But it's like sci-fi, you know, big sci-fi tropes, done teen. Lots of dystopian stuff. And this is... The Last Survivors is the post-apocalypse done teen. Okay. But it, with a post-apocalypse thing, the important thing is that you use the apocalypse as an analogy of some kind. And that the story that you tell that ensues from whatever the apocalypse is, like I'm always saying, that your your plot has to devolve from the story, has to all add up and make sense. But this is... The apocalypse is the rain stopped falling which is kind of slightly old hat anyway, because, you know, climate change is something we've been talking about for the last 10 or 15 years, right? So the rain stopped falling. It could have been relevant if, you know, it had followed through on that in some way. More than just, you know, nobody can find any water, right? Because mm -hmm. nobody can find any water. It's so obvious it doesn't need saying, right? But that basically is the entire follow-through. Why doesn't the rain fall? Well, through climate change, presumably. They don't say. It's all been used up on Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> but this is teen apocalypse, right? right. <laughs> so the rain stops falling ten years earlier, and these teens get left behind in this huge valley, basically a desert. Okay. And they, what they want to do is escape to the hills. But in 10 years, what nobody's thought of is just pointing their noses towards the hills and like putting one foot in front of the other. So they're coming up with this plan to get this old plane working again so that they can fly it to the hills rather than just, you know... Walking. Yeah, just putting as much water in bottles as they can and walking or whatever. I don't know, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really add up. And the fact that these teenagers are like teenagers... When the rain stopped falling ten years earlier, you know, when they were like five or six or seven or something, how did they even survive this ten years? One of the kids in it is about eleven or twelve, so he's presumably been living on his own, looking after himself, since he was a toddler. 
it's full of is it, stuff. Is it based like that. on a book or not? No, it's it's brand new. Yeah. It kind of, it's one of those things where it's one of those things where the people who are making it are trying to make something that's both B movie cheap and cheerful and profound. And because it's trying to be profound, the cheap and cheerfulness pretty much goes out the window. You get a character coming in called Carter, who's the guy who wants to rule the valley, right? So he's murdering off everybody else who lives there who doesn't come and join his gang, right? right. So there's a bit of cheap and cheerful B-movie pulp fiction type stuff there. Except because they're trying to make it profound, then there has to be this face-off between the daughter and the girl who's our main protagonist. And it's all a bit... Yeah, I can see where you were trying to go with that, but you didn't really follow through on the thinking of it, so it doesn't make any sense. And the whole film, you're just kind of thinking, oh, right. And one of the things they do, this girl who's the main protagonist, right, is her and a lad. Right, and they're obviously a couple. But his kidneys are failing, which means that he can't because of the lack of water, right? So he's stuck in a room. So the entire film is her going off and leaving him behind in the room. So there are just long, long stretches where nothing's happening and nobody's talking. So, well, you know, sometimes that's good, isn't it? Doesn't work because it's not that kind of film. Mm. Like I say, if it's trying to be profound and it's not hitting being profound, then the long bits where nobody's talking and nothing's happening are just long bits where nobody's talking and nothing's happening. We can't survive too long without water, can we? So it's like. You know, if your kidneys are failing because of lack of water, what, for a start, it's not they... complete lack of water. Say, There's a just... well that's running oh, right. dry, and they're getting a little bit of water out. Have of they? It. Yeah. So they don't drink their own wee or anything like that, then. No, no. It's a different type of film. Water world. <laughs> but they do in water world, don't yeah. they? Yeah. So there's no moisture in the air, so they can't capture moisture. There's any science? Well, this is what there's I any thought. Science if it's taking place in a desert, what you do is you put a great big sheet of plastic up and capture the condensation, right? Because yes. there's condensation at night. Yeah. So there are ways of getting water. It wasn't thought through. Nothing about it was really thought through. <clears throat> Right. Everything about it was like, oh, well, we need a character who wants to take over the valley and kill everybody because that's the sort of thing you have in this sort of yeah, film. Yeah, it sounds like they've got all the elements. They've decided we want this in it, we want this in it, they want this in it, but then not thought, well, how does that all join up? How exactly. That... Yeah. It's like a jigsaw puzzle where you've got the pieces scattered on the table and half of them are missing hmm. and nobody's even bothered trying to put it together. Right. It does make you wonder how these things get made and why. You know, whose dream is it? Why, we why nobody turns around and says, mm, can I just say... This doesn't work. Mind you, look at the Phantom Menace. You've got to say, sometimes people get enthused about things because they can't quite see the end product. No. They can, no. You can Sometimes you'll look at a script or whatever, mm. and especially if the director's sitting there enthusing about it in your ear, and you think, yeah, I can see how that can work. And it's only once you know all this stuff's been shot and you're in the editing suite where you're thinking... Actually, it doesn't really, does it? Oh, this would be cheap, mate. There's only a few people in it. It's in a desert. You know, they're, they're just trying to make their way to a hill. It's cheap and cheerful. And if it had gone for the sort of B-movie thing a bit more, it would have been a lot more successful because it would Might have been be fun. More... Yeah, exactly. I was about to use that word. But it's no fun. It's no fun and it doesn't tell you anything. I mean, we quite we, we like our dystopian and, and kind of post Yeah, exactly. films. So this didn't hold anything. I was any... looking forward to it. And and... Say, it doesn't hold anything for you, then. 
No, it's like, you know, 40 years ago they did A Boy and His Dog, right? Uh, mm. And A Boy and His Dog okay. takes almost exactly the same thing. It takes place in the desert in some apocalyptic future where the apocalypse is kind of this murky thing in the past that you don't really know about. You just know that it's happened. Here they are. And it throws in a talking dog, right? Instead of throwing in a boyfriend who gets left behind in the attic room, you know, making sure that there's no conversations happening when she's out on the road. Instead, he gets a talking dog. And the talking dog brings life into the film. And it's a hilarious dog. And then you throw in that whole underground sequence, mm. which mm. actually turns your film into something profound. So A Boy and His Dog, it's a brilliant film. But this was just... It lacked any of the imagination to yeah, no, turn it into no something risk. good. Yeah. On the other hand, the other film I watched was amazing. <clears throat> A cheap British film called Frequencies. Ooh, this isn't about this isn't about um, ghosts, is it? No. Okay. It's not remotely about ghosts. <laughs> so don't try and preempt me. Then. <laughs> the advertising gump says it takes place in an alternative universe where the main premise takes place. It's not really an alternative universe. What he's just done is there's a premise and he's run with the premise. So it's kind of, then the premise is a bit Gattaca-like. It takes place in a version of our world where people's frequencies can be read. And by frequency, this is like somewhere in between DNA and soul, right? Okay. So everybody, everybody emits this frequency and because they can read these frequencies they can then work out it is kind of in this way it's kind of an analogy for this thing now that we've got all this science with dna and stuff and we can work out who's more predisposed to having cancer mm. is this going to affect insurance and things like this so it's kind of an analogy for this but through the prism of it being a sort of teen romance mm. but it's not like a teen romantic comedy it's very much in the tone of Gattaca. It's quite a sort of cold, not cold, it's quite a cool sort of yeah, thoughtful like film. Very sterile? No, it's not sterile, but it's very quiet and thoughtful. Okay. But it is a teen romance. And in that respect, the other side of the analogy is, because you can read the frequencies, the main boy in it and the main girl in it know they're not supposed to be together. Right, oh, which is nice. the sort of analogy for the DNA thing. But there, it's not like Gattaca in that there are rules laid down which say they can't be together. Instead, nature has proclaimed that they can't be together. So they have this kind of brigadoon relationship. They can spend one minute in each other's company per year, after which he starts vomiting because his frequency doesn't match hers. Right? So the first... 20 minutes of the film, or however long it is, 10 minutes of the film, is them meeting for one minute every year over a period of about six or seven years. Then you get yeah. into the story. Well, by the time it starts when they're like, I don't know, eight or nine or whatever. And by the time you get to the main story, they're like 16. Oh, but another brilliant conceit here is that it tells this first six or seven years of their relationship, first of all, from her perspective so that you're seeing things from her point of view, and then from his perspective, because he, as it goes along, 
is trying to work out how he can change his frequency. Right. And he works it out. Or him and his friend work it out. And then it gets into there being a lot of twists. Okay. So I'm not going to say any more about <clears throat> it. Sounds good. But from this point on, from about the first half an hour in, there are a lot of twists which takes it into all sorts of different territories. So it doesn't stay a teen romance. It becomes like a X-Files type thing. And then something else. And then at the end, there are even more twists. And But they're not twists in the, oh my God, I never saw that coming kind of a way. They're twists that come naturally out of the premise. This premise about the frequencies. This is an example of a filmmaker coming up with a premise and sitting down and working out every logical mm. extreme that it can go to and tying it all together beautifully. And it was brilliant. Um, uh, you know, who, the was way the, who was the director doing oh, I can't remember his name. But the, f the film's called Frequencies. Look it up on Google. But it's <clears throat> as good as I've made it sound, possibly talking about it here, it's better. Just so go out and watch or it. DVD or? DVD. Oh, I think, I think the DVD's out when this podcast is. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so, yeah. It's... I'm inquisitive because I'd like to know how they met. Oh, the way they meet is just perfect. Oh, okay. But to tell you, I don't know, it's the very first shot in the entire film, so I don't suppose I'm spoiling anything by telling you. In this sort of parallel version of our world, it's not a parallel. There are no sort of parallel illusions. In this version of our world that takes place in the film, everybody's got like a regular surname, but their first names are all first names of famous people from the past. Mm -hmm. So she's called, I can't remember her surname, let's say Smith. She's called Mary Curry Smith. Mary Curry, all being one word. And he's called Isaac Newton-Jones. And the bit where they meet is where he drops an apple and it falls on her foot. Oh, that's oh. brilliant. <laughs> Except he doesn't, as you find out later. Uh, okay. These are the twists that come as the film develops. <clears throat> it's just wonderful. Oh, I will be watching The world this. is ruled by the apple. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> it is great, though. And there's it's one of those films where... Oh, I tell you what, you know, I said it's really cool and you said, is it sterile? No, it's not. It's actually also really funny. Okay. There are a lot of really funny <laughs> jokes in there, but they're not the kind of batty over the face jokes. But actually, I very rarely laugh out loud, as you two probably noticed when we were watching Unicorn in the Wasp, because mm. I don't think I laughed out loud more than about once, I think. No. But this film made me laugh out loud about five or six times. You lolled. I did. So there you go. That's mm. my big recommendation. Mm. Did you give it a good rating? I gave it 9 out of 10. Wow. I think That's if it had had just that little bit, I think it would have been just that little bit less cool so that you had just that little bit more heart in it, it would have been a full 10 out of 10. Mm. But it's just, like I say, it is slightly more thoughtful, perhaps, than it is heartfelt. Do you get uh, a way into a film that you're really enjoying thinking, oh, please... Please continue being like this. Don't let me down. Don't let me mm. down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it doesn't. There's a there's a there's a double twist about what's going on, and I say twist. I can't think of another word to use. It's not really a twist. About halfway through the film, something happens that moves it into a different territory, <clears throat> and then it becomes about something else. Except it's about the same thing, but looking at it from a different angle. 
And the only way to resolve this and move the film on is to find something, shall we say. And the thing that they find is so surprising and yet so logical and so wonderful mm. that, and especially the scene where it becomes apparent what it's going to be, because there's a scene about 10 minutes earlier that kind of foreshadows it, except you don't see it until the twist happens. But the scene that foreshadows it is just so lovely and so beautifully acted and played by the people involved that when it comes to the twist where it gets to the resolution, you just sort of go, yes. Yeah. That's it was... rare, isn't it, that you've, you've picked up a, a film that you've given I know, a there's been to. two or three that I've enjoyed, the, the but normally... this is the this been best film I've seen in a long time. I normally dodgy old horror movies, aren't they? This is one <laughs> of those films that, like some other sort of fairly quiet films, like Local Hero and Gregory's Girl, and probably Gattaca, actually. Yeah. You know, the kind of quiet films that end up on people's top ten films of all time yeah. list, this is a film that's probably going to do that. I love Gattaca. It was a great film. Hmm. Actually, I would say great. Yeah. Well, this Frequencies is a film that will end up on, you know, certain people's top ten lists. I can almost guarantee it. It's just one of those films that just, you know, if you're... If you like that kind of film, this film ticks every single box, pretty much. I'll get it. Right, on that note then, next week, possibly something different, if I can organise it, and if not, possibly Matt Smith. Because we're going to do a Matt Smith one as well. We may do that next week. We'll There's a moment now I thought, what, he's getting Matt Smith on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we're going to do a Matt Smith episode as well because we've done an Eccleston one and we've done a Tenant one and we're going to throw this out to vote as well. And because we might be doing this next week, I've probably already thrown it out to vote. So look on the Blue Box podcast Facebook page. But because the, we've already reviewed a lot of Matt Smith, we're only two series of stuff we've not reviewed. So it's just going to be a straight choice between two stories. From series five, The Vampires of Venice, and from series six, Night Terrors. Yes. Mm. Yes. So. Be kind to us. Vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Talking point, Simon. Talking point. <laughs> so, choice between those two. It'll be on the Facebook page. Until then, I was JR. I was Lee. Oh, Simon. And we'll speak again soon. that <laughs>